Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So this past weekend, I had the privilege of attending a friend of mine's uh, PhD uh, dissertation defense. Um, and congratulations, Carl. He passed. His, he passed. Oh, and, nice. and this was computer science, right? This is computer science. And specifically, he, was, uh, he did his PhD in machine learning. Um, so his dissertation was something that I understood maybe half of, but the half that I didn't understand, uh, prompted a few interesting conversations that I had with him, um, over the, over the weekend, just about the way in which we use computers to solve problems and the ways that, you know, he, his dissertation and what he was doing is solving these really complicated, you know, deep problems in this really you know, interesting way that uses lots of computation and all these types of things. Um, and you know, well, for, like for certain kinds of problems, that's what you have to do. But more fundamentally, I think what, it got, what got he and I were talking a lot about was just about sort of algorithms. And it's interesting, I find that I think any introduction to computer science, like one of the first courses you have to take, is almost certainly going to be some variant on introduction to algorithms. Um, like you know, there's going to be this sort of this fundamental thing, and they walk you through you know, the set of set problems, usually, like the classic ones are things like sorting, you know, like you have a list of you have a list of numbers, and you need to put them in order, how do you do that? And you you kind of start with the, maybe what you would call naive solutions, things like, you know, bubble sort and insertion sort, and then you start to get into the way more complicated ones where you start using quick sort or merge sort and, you know, radix sorting and all these really kind of clever, esoteric things. Um, And, Usually, I think that's presented as, you know, the algorithm that you start with, those naive solutions are like the, you know, it's like, well, they're, you know, they're the, they're the ones for the babies that you, when you're, just when you're starting out, you, you, you use those solutions and then you graduate to these really cool special ones. And in practice, obviously, like for sorting things, the reality is you don't actually ever use these algorithms ever again because almost any collection framework just has a, you know, sort option on it and it'll sort it for you. Um, but I think most of what they're trying to teach you when you're doing that is that, you know, understand that to solve you know, an algorithm, which is probably worth defining, is, you know, an algorithm is probably best thought of just as a series of steps to solve a problem. And you define ahead of time what those steps are. You know, so it's sort of like if you have a recipe for baking a cake, you know, like the goal is to bake a cake and you have a series of steps that you have to do. And when you define a computer algorithm, that's really all you're doing is saying, you know, it's here's this series of steps of operations that you have to do in order to complete and you know, do that task. And, and I, th- I think it differs also from like, you know, like y- you can have like, a lot of computer code that just does things that's basically like moving data around or doing simple things. I think when, when like, you know, if you're like, you know, populating a, a web page with like the results of the rows in a database, like I don't think most of the things you're going to do there are going to be what most people consider an algorithm. Uh, whereas an algorithm, like I, I consider it in the way I think most people consider it is like a method of solving some kind of interesting or non-trivial um, computing task of, you know, not just like moving data from one place to another or not just like basic math, like, you know, addition of things, but some kind of like slightly more com- complicated problem. Like, you know, as you said, sorting a list or something more complicated, like detecting what's in an image, you know, like there's all sorts of things you can do. Um, but like, I-, I think it has to kind of be like above just, 
you know, moving things from place A to place B to display them. It's something, some kind of method to solve a more complicated problem or accomplish a more complicated task. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, and certainly like when you're early, like the, the complexity of the problem that you're solving um, is, you know, will typically increase the more advanced of a developer you become. You know, I think there are some problems that were hard for me to solve when I was young and like the, you know, like I, I probably take some algorithms for granted now that I just, I know how to do something and so I do it. Um, but it's, yeah, there, there's usually some sense of solving a novel or interesting problem, you know, by creating a series of steps that you apply um, to do that. And sometimes algorithms are very prescriptive, you know, like that it's this very straightforward, like do step A, step B, step C. And sometimes they can become very non-prescriptive. And this is where you start to get into things like machine learning and neural networks and probabilistic things or heuristics where it's much more squishy and like you don't really know what's going on. Like a lot of what it seems like machine learning is, is like you are trying to train this magic black box to do magic black box stuff. But it's not an algorithm in the sense that you have like a specific set of things that that box is doing. It's much more you have to train and orient that box to do some task. Um, but it's, you know, it's still just used to solve a problem in that way. Um, so in practice, though, I think what is interesting is what I find in the day-to-day work of being a software engineer is that usually most of the work I do, probably 80% of the work I do, is the kind of work you were describing that isn't an algorithm. That is these, this kind of basic moving data around, just sort of just sh- shuffling things back and forth. It's making a web request, getting back a JSON object, parsing it, displaying that in a table view. Like That's like 50% of of iOS is used for that. Um, and then maybe another 30% is the like saving stuff to disk or doing kind of basic operations with that data. But what is interesting I find is that we still though have situations where we have to invent a new algorithm to do something. And maybe invent is the wrong word. Like sometimes these exist in the world and we're kind of adapting them to our own use. But honestly, there are some times that I've had to invent something that I'm kind of making it up. And maybe the solution to this exists in a more concrete and authoritative way in the in the universe. But I typically don't spend my time when I have a problem I need to solve. Like, okay, let me go to the journals and research all of the pe- you know past work that people have done in this area. Like, more often than not, for better or worse, I tend to just my, my, you know I start with a straightforward solution. And if, if I hit a wall, like I hit a place that I can't do something or I'm trying to solve a problem that's too sophisticated, maybe I'll go and try and kind of research something. But, you know, typically I kind of just start doing the basic, what I, you know, what I think what my computer science professor would always call the naive solution. And I start there and then I expand out from there. Um, and what's interesting I found is that in practice, the naive solution is often good enough. Um, the naive solution is often what I, what I end up keeping with. Um, some, not necessarily because I like, usually the naive solution isn't as performant for whatever that means for what you're doing. Um, but often what it, the nice thing about a naive solution is that it's often really clear and under, and, 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 you know, understandable. And the clever solution is often really complicated. Like if you look at, um, sorting a list, like this, the canonical example of an algorithm, I can explain to someone how insert insert works, which is essentially you take a you 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 know you take an item off the list and then you go you move along the list and see where it needs to go and then you look take the next one and you move your way along and you kind of 
you can very straightforward, like the actual code for an insertion uh, sort is very straightforward. Trying to explain to someone how quicksort works, which I understand like myself, where it's like you're partitioning the data into log n partitions, and in each of those you sort, and then you combine them back together in a clever way. Like, it's clever, and it's more performant, and I'm glad that my collection framework uses it. But in practice, it's not very maintainable or easy to understand. And the analog of those and things that I actually use in my day-to-day life, I often find that the naive solution can actually sometimes be better. And I have a few examples that we'll get into in a bit of places where I've run into this recently. But it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about where sometimes you don't have to have a clever algorithm. You can just need to have an effective algorithm. And either your its performance will be fine, um, or if it's you know even if it's a bit slow, it might be easier to maintain and overall be more reliable. Oh yeah, and that's you know that's ultimately more important. I mean, hardware these days is really really fast, and so it's always you know this is like kind of you know the root of uh, all evil being premature optimization kind of thing. Like it's always good to try the naive solution first because chances are it'll probably be fine. Like it, there's been very few cases where I've had to get really clever. Like normally, like I just try to do something in a straightforward way because, as you said, like it is better for things like uh, maintainability and especially code readability. You know, like if you if you write something really clever and you come back to it in two months, are you going to understand what it's doing and be able to debug it or or expand it or maintain it? You know, like, whereas if something if something is very you know just straightforwardly done in the, in like a naive looking way it's actually really easy to read and really easy to understand. And so that's better long-term for maintainability. Um, but also just like, you know, the hardware is just so fast. It's, it, you know, don't underestimate it. Don't, don't assume until you've actually tried the naive solution first, don't assume that it will be too slow. That being said, one of the most valuable things I learned in my computer science algorithms class is the concept of algorithmic complexity. This is basically like the, the rate at which, the performance or memory usage uh, gets affected as the size of the input grows. So this is you know the big O notation in computer science stuff and stuff like that. Um, and so the, the idea basically is like if you have like you know two nested loops, like you know first iterate over all the all the things on the outside, and then for each iteration of all the things, iterate over all the things again and do something with whatever you find. Right? That's that grows exponentially with the size of the input because for every uh, value in the input it has to do like, you know, that value or the number of values squared number of operations. Whereas if you can do something like in one pass, that's only doing number of values type of operations. And so, you know, the idea of designing algorithms to say only do something in a single pass or to only do something like in place instead of needing a whole bunch of memory or things like that, that does have value to me more frequently than I think because there's like you know like simple things like i can i can design my app to you know like in overcast i only usually have about 10 to 30 unplayed podcast episodes and so i can design the app such that it works fine for people who have 10 to 30 unplayed episodes because that's what i'm living with and that's kind of what i what i can test as being fast in my own day-to-day usage of it but there are some people who have 500 unplayed episodes or 10,000 unplayed episodes yes i know it sounds crazy but we've done episodes on this before about like extreme users uh, or extreme conditions. And, you know, so, so I actually had to make a test account that subscribed to like a thousand podcasts and didn't listen to any episodes for a year. So it has this massive back catalog <laughs> and I have to test things on that because sometimes like 
the assumptions I make when I'm dealing with a really small input size, like 20 or 30, simply may, simply are not performance enough or not even usable or might crash if you have like a couple hundred or a couple thousand of something. And so it is like the algorithmic complexity does end up mattering in those extreme cases. Um, you know, if you have something that grows very quickly, some kind of very complicated method, like my, my playlist sorting method is exponential. And it doesn't matter when you have 30, but it does matter when you have a thousand. And, and that, that, you know, that makes the whole app basically unusable. So I had to do things to fix that. And I had to, I had to, you know, measure it with instruments and, and figure out what was slow. And then I found this one method. It was, it was, again, it was like a nested loop. And it was like, oh boy, that's, that's going to be real bad. <laughs> and, and like, you don't notice it when it's a small amount of input, but it becomes a problem when it's a big amount. Yeah. And I think that's a good example where it's the, you like, sometimes you have to be clever and sometimes you have to go to literature or have to go to places to find the clever solution that, you know, someone has invented a method by, for doing this in a more performant way. But it's, I, it's a lovely, I, I love the approach though of just not starting there and not trying to be too clever. And I recently, and this is, I think, actually a good concrete example to kind of make this point. So I've been, as we'd mentioned a few episodes ago, I've been making watch faces recently. And one of the things that's always bugged me about the Apple Watch is that if you look at the time, um, at, or you're, looking, you're look, trying to look at the date at certain times of the day, you won't be able to see it because the date is, is covered by the hour hand or the minute hand, which is silly because this isn't a physical object. This is something that can move things around. And so, by the way, for the record, physical objects that have this problem usually have hands shaped such that it's not a problem. And also, because they're three-dimensional, you can usually just tilt the object to the side slightly and see under the hand. An excellent point. So the digital <laughs> version is worse yes. than, the, than the physical version, which just annoys me at so many levels. And so in all my watch faces, what I wanted to do is if I show the, t- if I show the date, I want to make sure that it's never hidden by the hands. And so I needed to come up with a method for moving the date around. So essentially, and I'll have a, a link in the show notes to a kind of a, a video of showing this in action. But um, so what I want to do is as the hands sweep along, if the hand is going to, if either of the hands is going to cover the date, I want to move the date out of the way um, so that it is still vis- visible. And the reality is you don't have to actually move the date very much um, in order to accomplish this because it in you know in, in practice it's very very subtle um, arcs that you're having to move it down so it doesn't actually even look really weird because it'll snap back into place but that was my goal and so I need to kind of in this in this context I need to make an algorithm to reposition this and work out where the date should be displayed at any given time and I started down the road and this is like this is why this topic came into my head was I forgot the lesson of starting simple and instead complicated because I'd been doing so much trigonometry and math and all these kind of clever things to for some of my layouts in watch design you have to do a tremendous amount of trigonometry like it's just it's all trig but the I started down this road of like okay can I kind of come up with this system of equations and constraints that I'm opt you know can kind of optimize over to work out when I'm going to be over something and then you know, it's, it was easy to handle the case of one hand because I can easily detect if the date area is you know, being overlapped by one thing. But then the tricky thing is, well, if I move it, then it may intersect the other thing. And then do I mo- where do I move it from there? Because I could then potentially move it back if I, didn't add, if I didn't have a clever equation for that. So I have all this complexity and I can't get anywhere. And so I'm like, well, is there a simple way to do this? And 
what I came up with was this like pointlessly simple version of this algorithm that turned out in practice to work really well. And so all I do is I had the, so you look at, you look at the situation and say, the date is going to be in one of five places. It's either going to be in its normal, like the three o'clock position, like it's, its home position. It's going to be just above or just below the minute hand or just above or just below the hour hand. Like necessarily, those are the five places that it can be because it'll either be shifted just past or just above either of those hands, but those are the five places it can be. Like th- th- that's like the, my, my overall assumption and I think that works. And then all I need to do is say of those five positions, are any of them covered by one of the hands? So that obviously the, you know, is the home position or are one of the other hands covering the other hand essentially? So if you imagine like 315 where both hands are kind of over on the slide, then certain some of those positions are going to be a little complicated. If they are, ignore them. So I start with five. If any of them are have to be uh, discounted, I discount them. You know, so maybe you'll end up with four or three possible locations. Then for each of the locations, I just say, which one is closest to the three o'clock position? Whichever one it is, use that one. And that, that algorithm works. It's exact. It does exactly what you mean. <laughs> like that's awesome. It's super simple though. Like, and it's like the code for it is incredibly clear because it's just like here's five positions. Are, you know, do any of them need to be excluded? Which is a very easy, like, straightforward operation to do because I can just look at where it is and look at where the hand is based on the time and say, do they? You know, do the, are these two things the same? You know, modulo like the the width of the hand, and then from that, just like do a quick you know, distance, like linear, like literal distance between, um, the, between the, the, you know, the home position and those things and whichever one is closest to use. And it works. And like, I loved that it was one of these things like that solution is a super simple algorithm, very understandable. Anybody could, you know, it's like I could, I took trivial to code up is very, very clear and it works. And like, is it the most efficient? Is it the most optimal? Like, I don't know. But in this particular case, it works fine. And I love anytime I can find these solutions where it's like this really straightforward, simple algorithm for solving a clever problem, um, but not in a way that is going to hurt my head or in, a, you know, in six months, if something, go- something doesn't work quite right or I change the shape of my watch or like something changes and I have to debug something and it's like a complete nightmare because it's a big series of linear equations that I, I, don't, I barely understand. Like there's always that thing where people say, you know, the problem with writing the cleverest code is that it's like debugging is twice as hard as coding. And so if you code at your limit of, of intellect, debugging is going to be impossible. You have to code at half your intellect so that later when you're debugging it, you can use your full intellect and still solve the problem. (laughs) I like that. That's a good one. We are brought to you this week by Linode. With Linode, you have access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting at just $5 a month. You can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Whether you're just getting started with your first server or deploying a more complex system, like, I mean, I host a bunch of stuff at Linode. I, I host all of, my, all of my web stuff there, including all of Overcast, and that is something like 25 uh, servers at this point. And whether you have just one 
or whether you have 25 or whether you have 100, Linode is a great choice. They have the fastest hardware and network. They have fantastic customer support behind it all if you need any help with anything. And it has just never been easier to launch a Linode cloud server. They make it super easy. They have great documentation, great support, great help. And they guarantee 99.9% uptime for your server. Once your server is up, they intend to keep it that way. They also now offer additional storage. Block storage is now out of beta. So Linode has fantastic pricing options available. Plans start at one gig of RAM for just $5 a month. And they offer high memory plans as well, starting at 16 gigs of RAM and lots of stuff in between. Uh, as a listener of the show, you can get a $20 credit if you sign up at linode.com slash radar. So that will support us. That'll show your support for this show and Relay FM, and you'll get $20 towards any Linode plan. So on that $5 a month, one gig plan, that could be four months for free. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there is nothing to lose. I love Linode. I highly suggest you check it out. It is one of the it is the nicest web host I've ever used, bar none, and one of the nicest web apps I've ever used. I mean, it's it's really really nice. Uh, so go to linode.com/radar to learn more and sign up and take advantage of that twenty dollar credit, or use promo code radar twenty eighteen at checkout. Thank you so much to Linode for supporting this show and Relay FM. So one thing I found, like, I just, I love coming up with a clever algorithm, not in the sense that, like, it's super complicated, but I love when I find something stupid that works. Yes. Like, something that's just, like, I can't believe, like, it, you, when, you, when you can literally just say, like, I can't believe that works. Yeah. It's, it's such an incredible pleasure as a programmer when you find some really dumb solution or workaround that's, like, you feel like you're getting away with something. Like, this shouldn't be this easy. It shouldn't work. And, <laughs> but yet it does. And I, I that that is one of the most satisfying things you do as a programmer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there is something just so like I love. And I think in many ways those are like my favorite moments of where you have these moments of insight where you're like, huh, yeah, no, the super simple like basic version actually works. Like I had another one that comes to mind for me of I had so in Sleep Plus Plus I do automatic sleep tracking um, now, which was at first I thought was going to be this like ridiculously complicated. Um, like machine learning or have it to like get into crazy algorithms problem to solve. Um, and I sort of go in, I, but to start with, I was just like, well, it's just like, I've been collecting all this manual data. And so like my manual sleep analysis where you use the actual accelerometer movements of your wrist during the night. And I use that to approximate your sleep. And like, I had all this data and I was like, well, let me just like plot of all the data that's being collected um, currently by the the system against the data that I already have and kind of see if there's vague correlations. And the, of course, the, there's this moment where I look at the data, I'm like, active calorie data aligns exactly with what I was calling restlessness previously. That's interesting. So <laughs> instead of having to do, which makes sense, like intuitively for what they're measuring with active calories, that they're looking for movement as well as like heart rate data. But it was this funny thought of like, huh, so all that complicated stuff I was thinking I was going to have to do with like looking at your heart rate and doing all this analysis, you know, it probably is pretty much just in a, like a, some, some kind of heuristics over active calories and then it's, and then like magic, it works. And basically that was what I did and that's what happens. And it's like, I just remember I still have a screenshot of it, of this like doing, doing this little plot of like my data versus active calorie data, you know, cause I tried with heart rate data and that didn't really align very correctly. And I do that and it's just like, huh, these align perfectly. Like it's like 98% of exactly the same data. And all I have to do is solve that 2%. But it seems like I'm getting away with something because it's super simple and super straightforward. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to do like this crazy, like, okay, I need to encode all this data into some method and then I can throw it into core ML, whatever that means. I don't even know. And then like do some magic. <laughs> it's like, no, I can just take the data and just process it in a reasonable way using some clever heuristics and, you know, I'll validate this against a lot of data. And it's, as long as it still works, then it's fine. Yeah, one, my favorite uh, hack algorithm is the fast inverse square root, which I have never had a need for. But I, I came across this and you know reading about it a long time ago, and it's it's uh, it was something in Quake Three Arena, and it was it, it in like it, it basically it approximates the inverse square root by not doing any division at all, and and only by like doing this weird bit shift with this one special number. And it, like in the code, like in the Quake Three source code, it even says like you know the spelled out version of WTF after this one line with this magic number. Like why why does this even work? Yeah. But it totally does. Um, and so uh, yeah, that's like I, I I just love that feeling of like I I either I can't believe this works and or I don't understand why this works, but it does. Uh, also, like one one area of algorithms that I find very satisfying is when you can make a jump. In performance that is ridiculous like that, that feels like you're, you're getting away with something there too it's like not only in, in simplicity but like if you if like a new tool becomes available to you or a new technique or new hardware becomes available to you that takes something that used to be a very slow thing or a very complicated thing and makes it very very fast like not getting like a 2x performance but getting like a thousand x performance and that kind of thing happens a lot of times you know as hardware advances we we get things like gpu acceleration which I I've never really had a, a use for directly, but like you know if you can if you're doing something complicated on the CPU that the GPU could be doing for you, you can you can get like you know 10x 100x 1000x kind of improvements with GPU acceleration if it's the right kind of work. Where I find value in this is in vector operations. Like I've talked about this before. Like the the accelerate framework on iOS and macOS is just fantastic, and it doesn't apply to everything. But if you find yourself like frequently going through large arrays of numbers to do big batch operations on them, whether it's like, you know, multiplying them against each other or taking the absolute value of a big batch of numbers or doing any kind of like, you know, comparisons or merging or other like applying the same math operation to a big array of numbers. If you can find a way to either either use the vector tools directly against your big batch of numbers or if you can find a way to restructure your need to use vector operations so like even if you need to do a little bit of setup to like okay i was doing this big strip operation if i can just put these numbers into an array of floats then i can call this one function call on it that can that can do the entire job in way less time and therefore also using way less code um, but like you know it's using vector units on the, on the processor to also t- do it in way less time and that kind of thing like there, a lot of times there's there's opportunity like that where like if you can just work your data a little bit to fit something that's a little bit different from what you were doing before, you can use a different kind of tool that might be orders of magnitude faster. And I always find there I'm, I'm so satisfied using vector stuff because it, you know I do a lot of audio processing and a lot of you know you know processing of large amounts of numbers and the vector stuff makes it so easy and so fast. Yeah, and I think too. It's what you're describing there is something that I've run into many times, where sometimes a simple data transformation can radically change your performance or change the way that you can structure an algorithm to reason about data. And like one that I find myself doing a lot is sometimes you take an array and turn it into a dictionary. Um, where you, if you, if you're doing any kind of operation that requires you to kind of keep referencing 
elements in the array, but you have to go and find them essentially to to do that operation. Like the number, like in most so many of my apps, there's always so there's something where I take an array, I turn it into a dictionary, and then I can go and then reason about it much more performantly later. And sometimes this even comes into cases where you're trying to do some kind of uh, database query. This is something where this is just a little, little performance optimization, I suppose. But like I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm I, rather than making five or ten or twenty select queries, you make one that is the union of those, and then put them in a dictionary, and kind of you can look look them up later. I often find that's way way faster. But I think the key thing that you're describing there is that sense that it's so it's so often if you can. There's, if there's some data transform you can do with what you're what you're working on, that somehow radically changes it. And looking for those and being aware that this is a possible solution that you don't have to you don't have to keep data in the form that you get it in um, can often just be a powerful tool to find a kind of a quick a quick or clever or you know like foolishly simple algorithm um, for processing it. Oh yeah, and by the way, don't forget about. Uh, wonderful unused foundation classes set and ordered set. Yes. And of course, their mutable equivalents. Those are really helpful and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's about all we have time for today. But I, uh, I, I wish everyone the best with their algorithm finding and their, the satisfaction in finding something really dumb that works. Yes. No, it is an absolutely delight. And I think it's one of the, one of the funnest parts of computer science. And like when, it, when you have those moments, like relish them, enjoy them. Um, Because they don't come all that often, but you know, remember what you learned in your first CS one hundred and one class, and it'll serve you well. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.